left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. If you're co-mingling the funds and you guys are all deciding on what to do and you guys are all vetting the deal together, that's completely fine. But if one person goes on vacation and tells the other two, hey, I want you guys just to manage it for me, I completely trust you, that's great. But now he just switched from active to passive and now you need a PPM. Since you are here listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you're investing with a group of people. Whether you're investing with family or friends or like-minded people in the left field investors community, Group investing is a strategy that can get you into more deals, help you diversify, and go beyond what you can achieve by yourself. Before TribeVest came along, it was difficult to overcome all the hurdles associated with group investing. It was basically a strategy reserved for the wealthy, not anymore. Now, TribeVest helps your group with everything from incorporation, collaboration, banking, and equity management tools all in a single place, so you can focus on building wealth with the people you know, like, and trust. I'm using TribeVest for all five, now six, of my investor tribes. It's a game changer. Check them out at TribeVest.com. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the left field community. Hi, I'm Dave Zook from The Real Asset Investor, and you're listening to Passive Investing from Left Field. I'm happy to have Dennis Shapiro here with me today. He began investing in real estate back in 2012, and he's built a cash-flowing portfolio, including a lot of alternative assets, note and ATM funds, mobile home parks, life insurance policies, tech startups, industrial, short-term rentals, and more. He co-founded an investment club for accredited investors in 2019. And following that, he launched SIH Capital Group to provide accredited investors with a simplified strategy to invest for passive income. He recently published a book, The Alternative Investment Almanac. So Dennis, welcome to Passive Investing from Left Field Podcast. Thanks, Jim, for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Well, it's great to have you. And and as I said, uh, kind of when we're offline, the first thing we do is I'd like you just to tell us your journey. How did you become an investor? What were you doing before that? And what are you doing now? Kind of the whole the whole journey of your investing experience. Yeah, I guess that's where it always begins. So I started investing in traditional stocks when I was 14, kind of like the same path. I had a family member, my oldest brother gave me a copy of Rich Dad, Poor Dad. We were very much a family where if one of us finds something really good, we kind of have to like brainwash other people to kind of think the same way. So he was about eight years older than me in much different position than I was as being a student. In uh, high school, I had a part-time job. I read the book. I wasn't actually a big fan of it the first time I read it. I definitely had a huge 180 later on in my life on it, but I was a little bit of a cynic. I was like, well, this guy's probably making more money on his book tours and speaking engagements than what he's really preaching in the in the book. But I did get out of the book saying like, hey, I should probably buy something, uh, buy an asset. I had about $1,000. I didn't know what to do. So I asked my older brother, what, what should I do? He kind of was like, well, I started investing in mutual funds. Maybe you should. 
So he put me in a mutual fund, high expense ratio, high everything. And I remember I was following it for a whole year and literally it went up the cost of the trade. And at that time, you actually had to pay for a trade. So I remember it was actually exactly $7. So it cost me $7 to purchase the mutual fund. I waited a whole year and I think it was up like $7. And I was like, wow, there's got to be a better way because this isn't really, you know, I'm not going to get rich off $7 uh, annual increases. So I took more of a deep dive into traditional assets. I started reading more about Warren Buffett and Peter Lynch and how can I do it better than just a traditional mutual fund. And that was my journey. My journey was, I thought I was really good at it. I was doing those like Yahoo stock simulators when I was like 16, 17, all my friends were doing like fantasy football. And I was just like, hey, if you guys think of your fantasy lineup like like, like a stock portfolio, you know, it could be much more fun and you'll actually learn a valuable skill. And I was pushing that when I was, you know, 15, 16, 17 years wow. old. I went to college. I went to a, a big business school in New York City. And once I was in school, I think I, I got to like junior year where you're supposed to start going for like internships and the global financial crisis happened. And it was just like a complete halt in the whole finance industry, especially I was in school in New York City. I had basically two choices. Basically, I couldn't find a job. So I was like, you know what? Let me go for uh, more education. That, obviously, that's always the solution, right? So <laughs> I went for my MBA. While I was in my MBA, I got recruited by the government. And I was like, wow, this is such a nice change of pace. I was going for hundreds of internships in the finance section. But over here, they actually want me. So I started working for the government. And then that first paycheck, that was a big, big life moment where I, it wasn't my first job. It was my first career. But usually when you have the lower paying jobs, you don't really see the tax hit. But once that first paycheck on my first real W-2, I was like, wow, not only are they my employer, they're my business partner. So I think I came home that day. I Googled, you know, how do I pay taxes? At first, the search yielded me a lot of unscrupulous results. Then I changed it to how do I pay taxes legally? How do I pay less taxes legally? And, you know, the first couple of things that came up were real estate. And then kind of like, then I started piecing together, you know, the rich dad, poor dad philosophy. And I did what I did with with how I got involved with stocks. I went to my oldest brother and said, what should I do? And he's like, oh, you should buy real estate. And I said, okay. I was like, you have some properties. Do you want to sell anything? Probably the stupidest thing you could ever tell <laughs> to an investor. You know, what do right. you want to sell me? And I literally probably bought his biggest headache. It was a low-income area, a rental property, every mistake. But it allowed me to quickly assess that being a small-time landlord wasn't my definition of being passive. So I kind of went down the rabbit hole where that's when I got into the note funds, the ATM funds, life insurance policies, crowdfunding. I probably, if you name an alternative investment somewhat related to real estate, I've done it. And during that whole process, I never really gave up on my traditional stocks. I kind of refined my process where I went from individual stock picking to more index fund focus. But the same problem kept repeating on the traditional side of my portfolio, where every income strategy that I tried failed. I tried the high dividend stocks and the high utility stocks and the closed-ended funds and the REITs and the MLPs. And what ended up happening is the same thing kept repeating. The traditional advice is those high yields will protect you in a downturn. But the traditional advice was not made when algorithms controlled how things go down. So what ended up happening is for two, three years, I would get outsized yield as I was supposed to, but I was underperforming my index funds. And then at the moment of a crash, 
when those high yield stocks were supposed to hold up really well, they went down just as much as the index funds. So I just came to the conclusion that traditional stocks will never provide me the income that I want. And just because of the liquidity, the liquidity leads to volatility and volatility is like the kryptonite to yield. So I started looking in and re-examining my total portfolio. And I was keeping the two portfolios separate where it was traditional or alternative. And then I started incorporating them and saying, well, if I streamline my traditional side and just put it into like a low cost index funds where I don't have to read analyst reports anymore of individual stocks, and I could kind of set it, forget it, but not expect any income from it, then I could focus all my attention. I I like to say it's really 1% of my brain power on the index fund. And then that allows me to spend 99% of my brain power on the alternative investments, which require networking and due diligence and all these different skills. But there's so much more value in applying those skills because like in the stock world, if you try to network with CEOs, you might go to jail for insider trading. But in the alternative space, that networking pays off 100x. So that's kind of been my journey. It wasn't fast. I'm at probably 20 years. I'm approaching 20 years on the traditional side. And since 2012 on the alternative side, so maybe another 10 years or so. So between the two, that's kind of like how I've merged those two and they kind of work really, really well together for me. Well, that's really interesting. And especially that you got started so young. I mean, that that's fantastic. I know, you know, coming out of high school and early in college, I was interested in the stock market. And like you, I couldn't find anybody else that, that really was, but I I kind of stuck with it for 30 years before I found the passive and the real estate and all that. So you're you're way ahead of the game. I guess my first question would be, you know, you said now you kind of have a you're in index funds and then everything else is real estate related or asset, you know, real asset related. So most people that I meet that start in the stock market and all that and then find passive real estate, they go all in. And left field investors, we kind of call alternative investing the left field stock market, the right field. And people are either in our group moving to the left field or already in it. And you're kind of staying in center field. So the question is, long-winded way of asking this question is, why are you still investing in index funds or in the market at all if you have the ability and knowledge that you have on the passive real estate side? That is a great question. And that's actually kind of the reason why I wrote my book, The Alternative Investment Almanac we could go into later, but just as more specifically answer your question, why stay center field is because I felt like the conversation has always been where the pros of one side uh, tend to subtract and discount the pros on the other side. So if I spoke to a stock person who's in the stock world, they'll say, well, all alternative investments are Ponzi schemes, right? And you're like, well, no, (laughs) you know, that's not it at all. It just requires, you know, doing more homework. But then when I talk to the alternative investments, they're like, well, my returns are better. I get the leverage. I get the tax consequences. You know, you don't really get that in the stock world. And you're like, so to me, all the pros of the stock market, it's not worth it for me anymore. What I've learned in these 20 years or so is that there are distinct pros in the stock market. One, it's the ease. It's the fact that you do get liquidity. Now, I'm a firm believer that 100% liquidity is not great for your portfolio. But to have some liquidity there's definitely some benefits for that to get that access. If you're all in on all private securities, good luck making you know maneuvers when the time is needed. So there's certain value in the fact that there is liquidity. The other fact the, the other big pro for me for the traditional side is that 
most Americans, when they were getting the stimulus money and they said, well, I want to invest, right? They're not going to take that $1,200 check and they're not going to put that in the private security, most of them. What they're going to do is they're going to go into their Robinhood app or something else and they're going to put it in the stock market. Now, one way or another, I want to benefit from the flow of cash flow. And where does it flow first most of the time? It is the stock market. The other biggest pro that people that go all in on the alternative investment side, I wouldn't say fail to realize, but more or less minimize the benefits of it is the track record of the stock market. If you go back almost 100 years, you know, it's averaged, you know, if you look at the Dow, the S&P, it's averaged an 8% annualized return. As long as you haven't panicked and can put your emotions to check. And I'm a firm believer that if you have your private securities making up a portion of your portfolio, it will be a hundred times easier to keep your emotions from check because the private securities aren't tanking like alternative, uh, like the, your stock portfolio is. So if you could keep your emotion in check, if you can realize that the cash flow does flow usually to the stock market first, and you realize that there's a track record of almost a hundred years, those are hard pros to argue against. Now, its biggest con for me was the yield. A good low-cost index fund will yield you 1% to 2%. Good luck retiring on that. That's clearly not the answer to that question. The answer to the income question is alternative investments. But the income to a pretty streamlined approach, and I'm not talking about stock picking and trading options and all these complicated things. I'm talking about like a very simplified traditional approach just to get that access to that cash flow and some liquidity. And then you focus in on the alternative sides with the rest. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting approach. And I haven't heard anyone do it that way before. And I think for me, and everybody has to find their comfort zone, right? For me, what I liked what you said is the liquidity, right? That Because the alternative space, liquidity is a problem. And in our group, we talk a lot about cash drag and where do you put your liquid money. And you know, if you're just doing index funds, that might be a smart place to do it. I think where I would get a little nervous is the volatility of the stock market because it's up and down and you really have no control or knowledge of when that's going to happen. So I get that. The other thing I was going to say, so the yield, you don't get any yield, but I would also say that in the uh, real estate or alternative investments, if you go back a hundred years, you're probably getting a similar yield as an index fund, right? The 8%, but it's tax-free. So it seems to me like you're diversifying. And so with that, you give up a little bit of return possibly but isn't that what diversification is about anyway? Yeah, yeah. And, and I'll make the argument that real estate is not tax-free, it's tax-deferred with the right planning. True. So, <laughs> yeah, so it's not one is a complete... And there's ways to defer taxes on your you know, stocks, especially if you, you set and forget it with an index fund. So it's 100% true. My point with the book and going on these podcasts is to create an end conversation versus... Like, you're right, like the, the cash drag is a huge issue. And that's why you're hearing some strategies out there like potentially kryptonizing real private securities. And to me, that's just creating a problem with a problem. The real solution is diversifying it with assets that complement each other, where you can remove some of that drag by not trying to reinvent the wheel with some of these strategies that are being proposed today. Yeah, no, I, I like the strategy. And you're right. I say, sometimes I do say the real estate can be tax-free and really is tax-deferred. And if you do it correctly, in theory, you can keep deferring that forever and then it effectively becomes tax-free, but it is better to say it in the right way. So I like that you have both traditional and alternative investments. You would be what we call 
a center fielder. And we have some others in our group who, who also like to stay in the market. And, and you had some good answers for that. So can you talk a little bit about also your group? You, you founded an investment club. So what is the investment club? What does it do? And why would someone want to join an investment club? That's absolutely a great question. So the investment club, that's actually a private club. That's just me and a couple of peers that became really close friends slash partners. So what ends up happening is one of the biggest cons in the private security world and why it's so difficult sometimes to get into is the high cost of entry. There are cheaper ways to get into private real estate, but most of the time, a typical LP, a typical LP syndication is around 50000 right? That's typically the minimum. So if you go in with a club, there's one or two things. One, you have the ability to leverage everybody else's contributions and potentially go to the operator and say like, hey, instead of 50, how about I put 150 in? And then, you know, 150 really doesn't move the needle, but that's just an example. Now you're grouping up. Now your your voice is slightly louder towards the operator at that point. Honestly, the biggest benefit was we tried to get in this because we just wanted to do more deals. But the biggest benefit was I have certain skill sets. I'm a great networker. I love finding operators. I love vetting operators, but I'm not the most fine details when it comes to underwriting. So by being an investment club, there are certain people that their skill sets are going to just jump out at you. It's obvious, like right away. And then you could leverage their skill set where I could propose a deal, but the way our investment club is structured, that the other two members have to greenlight it. So I have to, A, I have to almost like pitch it to my group. And then B, I have to defend it like a, like a thesis statement type of thing. And what I ended up realizing at first, I kind of was like, wow, this is a little annoying. I just kind of want to be like, this is a good deal. Let's just do it. But then getting that habit of talking it out, you realize, well, maybe you're right. That is a negative. Like one of the people in my investment club, we call him the no man. You know, he's the guy that says no to everything. And when he says yes, you're like, wow, okay, we got ourselves a good deal. And you need that. So this is, that's what an investment club does. It allows you to leverage your individual skills. Like we had a tech guy in the club and without him, I probably would never ever invest in a startup. And by having his expertise and knowledge, I felt 100% okay with investing. And at the end of the day, I think it expedited the learning curve where instead of probably if I was on my own, I would be at like two, three deals as an LP right now. Instead, we're at 10 plus just from the investment club that allowed us to check out different markets, different operators, just learning the variables that really are important and the variables that are not so important that get marketed heavily. So that's what an investment club allows you to do. I know you guys run a great investment club. I see I see the emails from you guys and the education part. I teach my partners stuff. They teach me stuff and it works really well. And just one last nuance I'll throw out about investment clubs is if you are going to do your own private investment club and not join someone else's investment club, you have to be very careful because if you co-invest and you co-invest with people in your club, you got to keep that club kind of smaller because if you do a bigger amount of people, one person is not actively involved and you're commingling your funds, you've just created a security. So, you know, this was a, a real eye-awakening moment for me a couple of years back when we did it. So if you're co-mingling the funds and you guys are all deciding on what to do and you guys are all vetting the deal together, that's completely fine. But if one person goes on vacation, tells the other two, hey, I want you guys just to manage it for me. I completely trust you. That's great. But now he just switched from active to passive and now you need a PPM. So there are some little nuances with investment clubs that you should be aware of. Yeah, there's a lot in there. 
And that was a fantastic way to explain the benefits of an investing club. And one thing, um, you said LP in there, and just for everybody on the same page, that's a limited partner. Those are people that are investors in a syndication or a deal. And a couple of things you mentioned, the learning curve and and getting kind of a second opinion, that is a great reason to to invest in, in a group. And what we do through Left Field Investors, we partner sometimes with a company called TribeVest, which is just a platform that helps groups invest together. And that sounds kind of like what your your investment club is. It's just a group of people getting together and deciding to pool their funds and invest. And as you said, it is a fine line you're walking because you could be considered a security. And one of the ways to get around that is to make everyone active. And what we do is that means everyone votes on the investment decision and everyone has a say in it. And that kind of gets you through there. And that's another way that um, when we use TribeVest, that just helps us because their platform allows that. But you wouldn't necessarily need something like TribeVest. You could do it on your own as you did. But as I said, the thing that really hit me is one of the main reasons you're doing that is to diversify, right? Get into different asset classes, different markets, different syndicators, but also just to rely on other people. And that's the value of community. And you can have a small community of five people in an investment club, or you could have a large community like left field investors or anybody else's community that's hundreds of people where they get together and just help each other and educate. And you can also have both, right? We have left field investors. We also have tribes and people are constantly helping each other. And I think that's one of the powerful things about real estate and the tribe. So the question is, how, how did you find people to be in your club, your investment club? And did you try to get people that were different so you could rely on each other's expertise? Or was it just a group of people who came together and decided to invest together? That's such a great question. One clear answer is kind of, I got lucky with my partners. The other more non-luck answer is that I started networking extremely aggressively at a certain point. And then when you start networking aggressively, because what ends up happening is my kind of career path is when I stumbled onto apartment building syndications and this whole alternative investment community, I was under the impression that I could kind of convert my family and friends that I've been around for years to that. And what ends up happening is you come off as like a shoe salesman, like encyclopedia (laughs) salesman, and you're trying to pitch all these benefits and you're like, hey, and they're like, but did you watch the game last night? And you just realized you were having the conversation with the wrong people and their childhood friends and everything is great. But the problem is they're just not interested in that. So the first step was to find people who were interested in that. So how I actually found one of my partners was I was at an investor presentation for a winery and it was a syndication and we were there listening to a the pitch. And what ended up happening was my partner, Matt, Matt Canning is his name. He was asking the operator really good questions. Like there were certain quality questions that were being asked and certain questions were like layups where this person may have never invested in their life. I really respected Matt's questions. And then on the flip side, turns out Matt was listening to my questions and he was really appreciating the questions. And then there was like a series of questions where we actually just piggybacked off each other. And it got to the point where the operator actually said, because he realizes the questions went down a rabbit hole that wasn't appropriate for an introductory investor presentation. And it was because of me and Matt. And he actually said, you two stay behind and I'll give you guys like a one-on-one deep dive on this deal. This way, the people who are 
don't want that much information because there's a lot of investors who do not want that much information. This way they can go and they can enjoy their dinner and, and, and the drinks at the bar. We'll sit down with Excel sheet and we'll deep dive into it. And afterwards, we came up to each other. We never ever met before. And we said, you know, what's your background? What's my background? It's nice to meet you, blah, blah, blah. Let's just exchange emails. And then what ended up happening is in the course of like two, three months, we ended up like almost emailing each other like on a weekly basis where I actually did not invest at that time and he did. And it was almost like the early innings of what the investment club later on would be, where I was giving him my reasons why I'm not investing. And he was giving me his reasons why he was. And that engaging conversation, that was actually the prelude to the investment club. So something like that. And that period, I call it the dating period, because once you, you know, you create an LLC with someone, once you co-invest with someone, you're practically married to them. So that dating, you should not rush into it just because you could see like, oh, this is going to be so great because of this and this. No, it should be like months and months. Like unless you're joining an existing investor network and everything like that. But in terms of starting your own, you need to really, really get to know that person on you know a granular level, I will say, and talking about different inv- investment philosophies. And the other thing that attracted me to someone like Matt was his tech background. I was way more into the real estate portion of the deal. And he was more, way more into the systems that, that were in place, the, the team that was in place, because that's the stuff is much more important to him in his world. So you don't want to start an investment club with someone just like you. You want that difference of opinion. And that's kind of like, that was the early innings. Our, our third member was also someone that I worked with and he was the IT person for my organization. And from day one, we realized that we were thinking, but it also it was like nine to 18 months from the time we started talking to the time that we pulled together our funds, the time we did operating room, it was definitely not like something like, oh, I had a blind date with an investor. And now we're like, we're, we're doing this investment club together. Hey, left fielders, this is Julian McClurkin. When I'm not on the court with the Harlem Globetrotters, I'm the chief storyteller for TribeVest. Now, you might be thinking, why would TribeVest hire a Globetrotter? (laughs) Well, through my travels around the world, I've met so many amazing people and heard their incredible stories. And it's no different at TribeVest. My job is to share the stories of people investing together as a group, as a tribe. TribeVest allows groups to pool their capital, set up their LLCs and bank accounts, help with operating agreements, funding rounds, and so much more. Whether you're investing with other dads from your kid's preschool class or getting into real estate syndications with people around the country like LFI infielder Brian Pawnell, TribeVest helps them all make it happen. If you want to hear more about stories about TribeVest's customers, just check out TribeVest's YouTube channel. And if you're already ready to start investing as a group, head on over to TribeVest.com today. Syndication investing on their own, we talked about this earlier, are very illiquid and they're long-term investments, right? You can't get out of them. Then if you go ahead and put that into an LLC where you're investing with other people, that just adds another layer of illiquidity and difficulty to get out of. So the, you know, comparing it to a marriage is very, you know, we, we use the same comparison. When I'm talking to people who want to join a tribe and, or invest together, I always say, yeah, there's this period where you're dating. But as soon as you sign that LLC agreement and submit funds, now you're married, 
right? It's very difficult to get out of that. So make sure that that's something you want to do. So I think, you know, your investment club is very much aligned with what, you know, we've been doing through using TribeBest. The only difference is TribeBest is just a platform that makes makes some of that stuff easier. So we mentioned in the open that you have a SIH capital group. Can you talk about that? What does SIH do and what's the whole process there? Yeah. So SIH Capital Group, that's my private equity fund. What I realized in the 20 years of investing in stocks was I couldn't figure out the income equation. And what I wanted basically was kind of like an illiquid REIT that it just had a better yield and that wasn't publicly traded. And I realized that there's not many options out there that allows for a more accessible version. So like my our investment minimums are only 10,000 versus the typical standard out there. And just to simplify it, where a lot of investors, especially newer accredited investors, they don't know the difference between a pref and a cash on cash. So what ends up happening is they'll sign up to a deal expecting a certain amount of cash flow. And that cash flow is not going to kick in until year three. And the first two years, you know, I call those the cash flow drag years. So I had this product in mind that I was looking for for all those years. And once I saw the success of the investment club, and I saw the, the success of the other alternative investments, I realized that when there's a product out there that you can't find and that you are looking for, most likely someone else might be looking for. So that's where SIH Capital Group was born. It was the success of the investment club. It took a step further. And I realized that we leveraged our knowledge in different alternative investments. And you don't just focus in on apartment buildings, even though the apartment buildings is the core if you blended with other asset classes like note funds and mobile home parks and self-storages, you can get a really well-diversified fund that's spe- specifically geared to just providing a higher income from day one. The backside, the negative on that is that there's no backends, there's no nothing. It's a fixed pref, but that pref is basically paid from day one because I'm not just invested in apartment buildings. So that's kind of SIH Capital Group in a nutshell. Right now, we only have the income fund. We do also allow our email list to invest alongside us on deals that we GP on. So that's if you want the higher total returns, then you would invest individually in that specific deal. We just make it very clear that the fund is, you know, the fund we're in, we have access to close to 96 properties providing that yield with a heavy dose of reserve because it's it's an ongoing. The fund was opened up in January. So what I wanted investors to do is if they wanted just like that fixed income, we pay 7% on our fund, they could sign up for the income fund and kind of like set it and forget it. If you want the added total returns, then you could invest alongside us on some of the deals that we're investing inside because we're already vetting it and we're actually on the GP team on some of them. So that's kind of the way I structured it. My hope is in the next couple of years to not only do the income fund, to have a series of different low cost. We don't charge any management fees. So that's why even though there's no backend, it's really a clean seven from day one because we don't charge management fees on any of our funds. We wanted it to be much more accessible, $10,000 minimum. It's just a different product, but it is a 506C product out there. Just wanted to clarify that. So it's only available for accredited investors, our income fund. Okay. And just so I understand, when you say there's there's no back end, that means the 7% is the 7% and there's no there's no true upside as there is. With, and that's why you would invest separately alongside of you in some individual deals if you want the appreciation and, and the upside on the end. Yeah, 100%. Okay. Can you explain, you mentioned it, but can you explain the PREF as compared to cash on cash return? 
Yeah, so I'll put apartment building. So a typical apartment building syndication these days, like especially one in a market that's, you know, basically what market is not hot at this point. But basically what happens is there's costs associated with buying the property, starting to implement the business plan and the cost of ramping up the business plan to get those higher rents that usually these apartment building syndications happen. What ends up happening is the first year or two, you see much lower cash on cash. Cash on cash is what's actually distributed to the investments based on your initial investment versus a PREF is PREF is just a protection for the limited investors in the deal before the profit is split with the general partnership. So the problem is people see PREF and they automatically think that it's actually cash on cash, but it's not. And what ends up happening is, you know, you're in this deal and you realize, hey, I'm getting distributions and it's only one and a half percent or two percent or three percent, but I was promised seven. And then you contact the operator and they say, well, the PREF is not the cash on cash. So the PREF is just a protection there for the investors for a certain amount of profits. The cash on cash is actually what the investors are seeing. So in my income fund, I actually got it where the PREF matches the cash on cash. And for whatever reason, we can't pay the full cash on cash, then the PREF kicks in. But it's a much, much different product than what's kind of pitched out there. And the PREF usually is higher than the cash on cash usually. So that number is thrown out like on the marketing documents. And that's the number that's like, like, oh, this is a 9% PREF or an 8% PREF. But when is it going to pay the 8%? You know, it's going to take years. If you invest in some in a, a asset that has a preferred return, the PREF, and it's 7%, they have to pay you 7% before they pay themselves. So the example you gave, like they pay 1.5% in the first couple of years, they have to make that up on the back end. So you're correct. You're not getting the 7% every year, but over time, they pay that back. Is that correct? Well, actually, I don't want to say 100%. I would say like 99% because there are certain prefs, if the language dictates it in the offering documents, that do not roll over. So And they're only annualized. That's pretty misleading out there. Definitely not a big fan of it. If, if that's something I, I would not in any shape or form ever invest with an operator like that. Because what that means is, like you said, if you had 1.5% for a year or two, right, you have a lot of PREF then gets stored up where you're owed that money. Now, if yours doesn't roll over, basically, that means it's just for that year. And then it kind of resets. Well, if he hits the seven next start of next year, then you're not getting that back return that you were expecting. So it's not 100% always the case. But usually PREF is rolled over for the life of the deal. And that, that's why it's so important to understand the deal that you're working on, understand the terms, and have a good relationship with the sponsor. And so I understand that you're a GP on some deals and other deals that you're investing on in the fund, you're not a GP. So can you talk about how you vet a sponsor and what kind of things you're looking for when you're trying to find someone to put your money in and, the, and your funds money in. How do you make sure you're you're working with someone that's a high quality operator? I wouldn't say magic sauce, but that's probably the most important, probably anything in our space is the operator. I've heard a couple of my mentors would say a good mentor could make a bad deal work and a bad operator can take the best deal and tank it. So the operator is really real and they use different terms, obviously, some not so eloquently. But what I look for personally in operator mainly is these days, I have an like, established operator list, so it's a little bit different these days. But when I was starting out, I made the, first, the mistake at first of reaching out to operators 
And that was definitely a mistake. What I ended up realizing what works so much better is build out your network first. And in my book, I talk about like a three-step process. And the first step I have is just to learn the basics of the language. And what the easiest way to do that is actually go into your LinkedIn account and just put in like real estate investor underneath your profile. You will get spammed with so many 15-minute calls, your head will spin. And those calls are not for you to build up your network. Those calls are for you to build up your understanding of real estate terms because they have their own very distinct language. So when you get on those calls and you're talking to these newer operators and insurance brokers and mortgage insurance guys, whatever it is, just jot down what you don't understand. Once you could have a couple of conversations where there's no more new terms, then you're ready for the second step. And the second step is to actually go out there and network, not with operators, but with other limited partners, other investors who have a passive focus. That's where something like your investment community can cut that process down significantly because now you're talking to people who, who are in three deals and two deals and four deals and five deals. And what you're listening to, what markets are they investing in? And how is a certain operator? Now, yes, you usually sign NDAs with a lot of these operators. But a lot of times, if you could get to know a fellow investor after months and months and months of talking and sharing about what's going on with you, there comes a natural period where there's open honest dialogue. It's not something that happens day one. Once you get that dialogue going, that's when you're going to start hearing certain operators that you should start reaching out to because they already went through vetting. They already went through this like natural course because no limited partner that I have ever met has ever recommended me an operator that they're going through that the numbers are not performing. No one has. It's like a common etiquette. You're not going to be like, oh, wait, you know, this guy hasn't paid out for three years. You should definitely invest in his next deal type of situation. So those are my metrics in finding operators. That's kind of how I built my operator list and a great place to network with other limited investors. If you're not going to join a community like yourselves, like your left field community is to go to a conference and that conference, you want to look at who the speakers are. You want speakers that are operators because that's where the other limited partners are going to go there. You're not, you shouldn't be going to a wholesaling or a single family rental conference. You need to go to a syndication conference and you'll see it by the operators. If the operators are syndicators, then all of a sudden you're going to be able to network with other people. And that's kind of like my process is you, for all the newer investors, you should learn the language. Then you should, you know, spend the time to build out the network. And then only then you should be reaching out to operators. And that's why it helps with the traditional side of having 1% of my brain power, because all of this stuff takes time. But the really good news is that like you do once you've built up that language. You don't have to relearn the language and you could stop taking those 15 minute calls. You now you move on to the second step. Now you build up your network and now you only need to build out your network once again. So, you know, yes, it might take the first couple of people and you only need like, I would say five to 10 high quality other limited partner investors that are actively investing to really good, get a good sense of like a collective mindset of what's working, which are the best operators and everything like that. Does that answer your question? I, don't, I may have went off on a little bit on tangent. No, that was phenomenal. I mean, you nailed it. The first part, get the lingo. That that's easy, right? You you gave a great a great way to do it. And there's a million ways you could do it. I, I like yours. If you if you don't want to talk to a bunch of people, you could also just listen to a million podcasts, right? You're gonna get a lot of that in there. But the most powerful thing that you said, and the thing that I hope everyone understands is 
networking with other investors to get referrals so you can find other sponsors. That is the key, I think. And I've just recently uh, kind of learned that I've decided that I'm only, with minor exceptions, I'm only going to invest with sponsors who are referred to me by somebody that I already know, like, and trust. That's my new approach to screening sponsors. And yours takes it a step further where you're purposefully networking with other investors so that you guys, you can share sponsor knowledge with them because you're right. Who's going to recommend a sponsor that, that they've had a bad experience with? No one. In fact, they'll warn you away from those sponsors and give you the good one. So that nailed it right there. That, that's the whole reason you develop a community, you develop a network, and to find sponsors that are high-quality sponsors. Because there's a million sponsors out there. They have podcasts. Some of them are excellent marketers, and some of them are probably pretty good operators. But if you're an excellent marketer and you're not a good operator, you know I don't want to invest with you. So I, I can't echo enough that your way of screening for sponsors, it's fantastic. I love it. That's really good advice. And Jim, just before you go to the next slide, though, I, I just want to throw out there, this is a critical point. The main, main reason why you learn to the language before the networking step is because when you start networking with other people, if you don't know the language of real estate, you're going to come off as like, help me, help me, help me, versus what you're trying to do is build a network of peers. And that is why you have to learn the language first, because it's going to come off like you're asking for a whole bunch of coaching help. And other LP investors who've done a few deals, five or six, they're not looking for to become someone's free coach. What they're looking for is a person they can share knowledge with because they can share knowledge back. So that's why I, I want to throw, I, I skipped it. And I while you were at the end, I was like, I should just mention this. So I just want to get that in there. That's great advice. You are right. And that's where, again, you know, I always talk about community because I think that's the most important part. And it doesn't have to be left field investors. It could be any community. But if you dip your toe into a community and start reading the message boards and learning the, the terms, as you said, in the vocabulary, and then you start interacting with people, you're right. Then people are going to want to connect with you because you guys are all on the same level. And that, that's super powerful advice. I love it. I can't thank you enough for sharing that because it is two components and you need to do both. And if you're just doing one, you're not going to get the results that you're hoping for. Absolutely. So the last question I ask on the podcast is, what's a great podcast that you listen to related to real estate or syndications or, or anything? And you can give me a couple if you want. Yeah, so I'll throw one out there, Elevate by Tyler Chesler. What I love about his is that he decided to brand it not from a point of like, hey, I'm just going to talk about syndication investments. What he does really, really well is he'll bring on guests where it's like a neuroscientist and it's a really good neuroscientist. And they'll give tips on like, hey, if you sleep better, and these are a couple of tips that help you sleep better, you could become a better investor. Like Tyler will then spin it where how great it is if you wake up every morning in your thing. And then he'll have episodes on meditation and how that can help you become invested. So he'll take these like really, you know, best practice. Like he's almost like he's got like a Tim Ferriss type approach where he's taking in like best practices and how you could apply that to your life. And then he usually will relate that to kind of syndications. So I really like his podcast. I like Taylor Lott's passive investing for business professionals. I personally know Taylor for a few years. And I met him at a conference and he was part of, he was probably part of my original group of investors, like kind of like the way I described it. And at first I started like listening to his podcast as like a courtesy. 
But then I was like, wow, this is really good. You've got really good people coming on. And I've been listening for a couple of years. Tellus had me on and Tyler's had me on. So it's definitely cool to go from being just a pure listener to actually starting to be on some of these podcasts. But Taylor has a great podcast. The Usuals, The Best Evers. Sometimes I feel like those, I feel like the daily ones sometimes are too short. I don't like to tune in just for 20, 30 minutes. I want an hour of knowledge. I want to get into some cool stuff. I don't want just the basics on, oh, I found real estate. It's really, really awesome. Everybody should do it. And that's the end right. of the podcast. I want to get out of every podcast where I want... So I also had this knack where for like for a couple of months while I was building on my network, I would literally... Every podcast that I enjoyed, I reached out to the host and I enjoyed... I reached out to the guest. Every single one. And you know what? It's so easy... The guests are usually thrilled because that's the whole point of them going on. And I ended up having a much larger network and stuff like that from that. And I can't do that if the podcast is 15 minutes because why am I reaching out to you? I don't know. Like I, I want to be able to reach out. I really liked what you had to say about this, this, and that. And let's further the conversation. So I like the longer ones. I like the 30, at least 30 minutes and, you know, to an hour. Definitely think. COVID definitely slowed my podcast. I used to probably listen to two a day. Now I'm probably more like two, three a week because I'm not commuting as much. So those are the little things that um, you know I'll throw out there about podcasting. Well, that's great. And on, on that note, you know, as getting in touch with people who've been on podcasts, how can our listeners get in touch with you? And also please include where we can, uh, the name of your book again and where we can uh, get that. All right. So this is a handful. I got to take like a deep breath. Okay. Yeah. The, my book is called Alternative Investment Almanac, Expert Insights on Building Personal Wealth in Non-Traditional Ways. The best place to get that is on Amazon. And I think that's how I kind of found myself on your podcast, where I think one of your partners at Left Field actually read my book and we were in an invest, invested dinner and came up to me. He's like, hey, did you write this book? And I was like, oh, wow. That was one of the coolest moments of my life to get that. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So that, and apparently I stole his idea. He said that he wanted to write the exact same course of the book. I'll give you so the book, Alternative Investment Almanac, it's found on Amazon. My name, just search Dennis Shapiro. My first name is with a, at one end. There's a whole story behind that. And the book is basically, it's about nine asset classes. It's a book that I wanted to give a high level intro to an asset class without going 300 pages into it. So you don't have to read 300 pages to learn that, hey, I like apartment buildings or I like ATM funds. So it's a quick snapshot and then it gets into the Q&As and that's my favorite part. So for every asset class, I got everybody from my network that I really, really respect and they came on and they answered the exact same questions. So it's really cool for from an investor perspective to see how a really famous apartment building operator answers these questions, and then how a note investor answers these questions, and then how a mobile park operator. And the basically the combination is you read 20, 30 pages. If you like what you hear, you got two great operators to reach out to, or you know most of them have their own podcast and you could go down that rabbit hole. And if you don't, great. You just probably spent 30 minutes to find out that you're not interested in a whole asset class. And now you could switch to a different asset class, which is the next chapter. So that's my book in a nutshell. And the best place to reach me is sihcapitalgroup.com. If you go on it, I have two abridged versions of my book. So I, I did an abridged version for the actual content. And then I did an abridged version for the actual Q&As. And both of them you can download for free on my website. So it's sihcapitalgroup.com. Okay, that, that's awesome. And that was um that was Steve Sue. 
and he actually recommended the book. And, well, he recommended you to me as well. But I, uh, I, I bought the book recently, and it's on my on my shelf to read. So I'm excited to dig into that. Thank you for being on the podcast. It's been fantastic. Really enjoyed it, and we'll talk soon. Thanks, Jim. I really enjoyed the conversation with Dennis and hearing his perspective on things. You know, he got into real estate. He read Rich Dad Poor Dad didn't really stick. And then he was looking ways to uh, reduce his tax burden and let him to to real estate. Now, he's what we would call in left field investors as, as kind of a center fielder because he's in alternative assets and he's also in the market. But he had a really compelling reason to be still in the stock market and have paper assets. It's liquidity. He wants to benefit from the flow of cash into market assets, especially at a time like now when the government's printing money and, and that's the first place people go to put their money, but also the liquidity. So it allows him to avoid a little bit of the cash drag. He still has risk on that liquidity, but he puts some money in there in the market so he can get to it if he needs it. And he still concentrates on alternative assets for tax benefits, cash flow, and all the reasons that we do that. But the market can help with the liquidity problem where alternative assets, as you know, are very illiquid. So I like his strategy and it makes sense to me. He also talked about group investing. And I like the reason that he he used why he does it. He uses to leverage the skill set of the others in his group. So don't find people that are just like you. Find people that are different from you. And that improves the results for everyone in your group. And of course, you get diversification as well because you're able to invest in more deals because you have more capital from your group. But I really liked the way he he said he's using it to leverage the skill set of others. So that was pretty clever. Finally, he has two steps to find new syndicators, right? The holy grail of, of everything we do here is to find quality sponsors. And his first thing is learn the lingo, learn the terms. So when you have conversations with people, you have some credibility. And that way, other people aren't thinking you're just there to take knowledge from them, but you have something to share with them. And then his big recommendation was network with other LPs, other investors, rather than syndicators. Because those are the kind of people that are going to recommend, hey, here's a great operator I use. They're never going to recommend, as he said, the ones that don't work out. They're always going to recommend their best, their quality sponsors. And so if you put yourself in a place like a network like Left Field Investors or any network, any group, go to conferences, meet other LPs, other investors. That's the way that you find great new operators. I loved how he said that. Fantastic conversation. Really enjoyed it. We'll definitely have to do it again. Um, I'm in the middle of his book. I recommend that you check it out. It's a good one. That's all for today. So we'll see you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.